Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> hey, y'all, it's Danielle, and welcome to episode 32 of Ain't No Free Lunch. Tykeen and I are happy to bring you our first episode of 2020. We're discussing, you already know it, the Rona. Specifically, its disparate impact on Black communities nationwide. We offer some solutions too, so don't worry, that's what we do. Special thanks to all the essential workers out there who are sacrificing so much for the rest of us. Turn us on, share us with your friends, either you're at work, but most of us, we already know, we all in the house anyway. So with that, let's eat. Ain't no surprises on this, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> it's been what? Ain't no, ain't no sneak recording here. Like, oh, you going to... Literally says, like, you are now being recorded. All right. So it's been since what? January? Actually, well, last time we, we were recorded, we hadn't crossed over into the new year yet. Into 2020. We were talking about, yeah, we were talking about New Year, New Me. Right, right. And then 2020 said... <laughs> <laughs> that's cute that y'all had all those goals and all those resolutions because that's not what's about to happen. I don't think I've ever really been like, oh, wow, this whole year, throw it away before. Even though 2020 hasn't been ideal, I'm still not at the point where like throw it away. There's still plenty of my goals that I think I can still accomplish or still reach. And even though it looks like the Rona, COVID, will take up most of the year or a good portion of the year. Like, I ain't giving up any of this time. Like, what do you mean you're not I'm giving still, up any of this time? I'm still going to make the most of it. If we can go back outside in September, September through December is going to be amazing. The rest of my life is going to be amazing. I promise myself there's no more, like, I'm going to wait for the right time or the right moment or... I can wait until next year for this experience. Like, no, if I wake up and say, you know what? I'm going to fly out to Cali and hang with Danielle for the weekend. I'm just going to call you and say, hey, pick me up from the airport. <laughs> like, it, it's no more. You know what? Maybe I should plan and give her some grace. Like, I'll be out there next month. No, nah, I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to be much more impulsive after this. I can't say that I'm going to be much more impulsive. I still want to throw 2020 away. I don't think me wanting to say that this year hasn't been a great year means that I'm not doing, like, you know, I set an alarm. I woke up at 6.30 this morning. I went to bed at 10 p.m. last night. I worked out. I showered. I sat down and I worked in my you, writing group. You like, better I'm, shower. A, a lot of people, listeners right now, I know some of y'all are poutine. <laughs> like <laughs> uh, that's my polite way of saying y'all ain't showered not just today but in some days and I'm gonna need y'all to um go hit at least hit them hot spots like my grandma used to say <laughs> my, my grandma used to say you need to go ranch it off smell like outside <laughs> Uh, some hot spots oh, uh, at the very, very least. I think this year has been not anything that I expected it to be thus far. That doesn't mean it still can't be great. Yeah. You know, like kind of reflecting back on our last episode, we had some lofty expectations. I think we talked considerably about 
February 2019 and how that was traumatic and how we were reclaiming our time and really looking forward to 2020 being quote unquote a movie. Right. And then, you know, the Rona happens. It's like, wow. Like, there are a lot of people who are saying, oh, it won't be this bad. You know, just kind of reflecting back on the rhetoric early that, and I don't know if we call it American exceptionalism because there was this notion of, oh, that won't affect us in America. Oh, yeah. Um, There's a lot of that. Yeah, like, oh, those are third world countries and they live too close. They eat bats and snakes and stuff. Like, we don't have to worry about that here. And then it came to America with a swiftness, right? Oh, yeah. The xenophobia definitely caught up with a lot of us, particularly given that we had things in place to, like, prevent something like that. Like, you know, the pandemic task force at 45 dismantled. But like, I think it really, really hit it. And I think that one of the things that we've talked a lot about already is just trying to acknowledge the hardships that people are experiencing right now are just astronomical, right? People are losing family members. Social distancing just doesn't mean being distant for some people. It means social isolation. It's loss income. It's feelings of being overwhelmed. It's people not getting basic services that they need. It's also like for on my end, it's paranoia. You know, I live with someone who is autoimmune, you know, what is it, compromised? Because I came back from California because I didn't want to be isolated in my apartment alone. So living with someone, everything that I do, I'm thinking, what happens if I catch it and I bring this home? Like, what type of responsibility do I bear? And so I can't imagine what it is for other people who are really, really going through it in a, in a, in a very visceral, very real way. And it's just more people than we could ever imagine are, are being hit by, like, by this. And so I, I just don't know. When we think about, like, 2020 goals, it almost seems trivial. They're still important. Our resolutions are still important. But it's just like, what what are they in the scheme of this bigger catastrophe that all of us are experiencing at varying levels, but still are experiencing at the same time? I keep an eye on my goals not to be tone deaf to anyone else. But I keep an eye on my goals because that's how like I'm protecting my own mental health. And as someone who has you know disclosed on this platform before about you know being a a survivor of heart disease, what, 16, 15 and a half years strong now? Mm-hmm. 16 and a half years. Yeah, 16th anniversary was in December. Like, uh, most of y'all don't know, but I went through this experience with a COVID scare. And early on, went to the doctor, I was sick. The doctor said, hey, like, you definitely have some type of viral infection. We don't have tests here, but act as if you do have COVID. So I went, as I was in quarantine, the very next day, the health department tested me because of my pre-existing condition with heart disease. And then it took me 12 days to get results. So fortunately my results were negative, but 12 days, right? And that's why some of these numbers are kind of misleading to me, but kind of understanding my own experiences, right? Like first I wasn't tested. So I know a number of people who are in that same situation who had a majority of the symptoms, but we just don't have the infrastructure to test everyone. And then the fact that I was testing and it took 12 days uh, was interesting. And so then I, you know, I feel considerably better now. I had to go to the doctor again and actually got an asthma pump, 
which has helped like my late night cough. But then, you know, there's this notion that probably 30 to 40 percent of the tests are false negative. So you can actually test and be diagnosed negative and then it's wrong. You know, kind of talking about the laws beyond income and losing family members. You know, Mm -hmm. I think mental health is super critical right now. Mm -hmm. And then like this fear because you never know if like, yeah, things could be okay for you today. Like you could still have a job, but it's this fear that my company may shut down. Or if you're in a nonprofit sector, Hey, like we may not get this grant or, you know, even some of these jobs that people thought that, Hey, like I'm always going to have a job. You know, I work for the government. Even some of those jobs are being furloughed right now. Yeah. I think they said last, I think last count was 22 million Americans are unemployed since the outbreak of COVID. 22 million. That's a number. Yeah. I could be wrong. Somebody should fact check me. We should we should hire a fact checker for our, our podcast. <laughs> oh, well, we need to record more first. Uh, that's true. That's true. But we're here and we're recording because, you know, we're at home. And while we have other things to do, we're going to be better. Like we say every time we record, <laughs> we're going to be better about getting these podcasts out so that they're not so sporadic. Yeah. Yes. You know, the interesting thing, because we had like three straight days of declining positive results in Virginia. And so a number of people were like excited. Oh, we're flattening the curve. And the governor, to his credit, said, hey, but we're also testing less people over these three days. And so, you know, he's established a COVID task force now, which I think is a step in the right direction because I'm sure we'll get to it. Trump has this task force to reopen America, which is... A joke. Blasphemy. But, you know, over the past 24 hours, we have 700 more positive cases in Virginia. Meanwhile, tomorrow, Wednesday, April 22nd, there's a planned rally because, you know, we have a reconvened session of the General Assembly tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And there's this planned rally, which I took a peep at the Facebook group yesterday. I know they won't ever let me in there. But there was <laughs> over... <laughs> There were over 30,000 members. 30,000? Yeah, over 30,000 members in this Facebook group. So who knows how many people may show up tomorrow to demand that the governor reopen Virginia. It's and, you know, the, Republic, the Republican Party of Virginia has sent out this mailer yesterday that's rooted in this false narrative that the governor with his socialism is trying to take all of his progressive values to limit and to make big government and to limit their ability to move forward like it's it's so much nonsense oh yeah but but this started with donald trump with the whole liberate virginia liberate virginia his tweet list i mean it's very intentional it's very intentional at least i think so and i think also what's what's interesting is it that really like line takes us into this line of who are the people that are protesting to open virginia right and then what are the populations that are being the most severely destroyed or like having the most disparate impact on them Honestly, just not saying that there aren't Black people in the Republican Party, but (laughs) low-income Black people are being, like, disproportionately, like, nationwide disproportionately being more heavily impacted than 
almost any other group. And so, but then like you have people who are coming in to protest and opening the, our quote unquote closed economy. And they're not the people, they're not the population of people that are being hit the hardest in terms of like physical health. Yeah. I remember having a conversation with one of my good friends about a month ago now. And we talked about how COVID wasn't really affecting like rural places in America and that being Trump's base. Like if you look at an electoral map of the 2016 election, right? You Mm -hmm. look at the counties that went red, those counties don't have a lot of COVID cases, but like the urban centers, the places that Hillary Clinton won, those are the places that hit the hardest. And we'll we'll talk about some of those variables in a second, but that's contributing to this is fake news. This is this is a hoax. This is what they're trying to do. Since impeachment didn't work, like I think that's fueling some of the narrative of Fox News because a lot of these places, you know, even in Virginia, right, places like Richmond and such, I think people overall are honoring. I don't even like using social distancing anymore. Mm. I like using physical distancing. Okay. I think people are honoring those guidelines, but there was an article somewhere I read earlier this week about Chesterfield County having like a D minus. Like, people are refusing to physical distance there. Really? Yeah. But see, like, the thing about it is, I don't know. I just, I... I'm just, I get really, really frustrated because a lot of people, for me, like, it's not just wash your hands, cover your mouth, like, stay six feet away for your own personal health. It's not about you. It's about all of us. We need to be concentrating on saving the people that are around us. And so, like, even if you feel like you're going to be fine and you want to catch it, please don't carry that into the grocery store where my daddy has to go or where my mama has to, has to go, both of whom are over 60, and accidentally spread it to them. It's not about you. Right. Well, and you know, that's been my frustration with this whole narrative of only older people are dying, they're going to die anyway. And it's like, yo, like, what'd you say? As a disrespectful. Oh, yeah. Like, yo, like, uh, only people over 60, like, okay, well, my parents are over 60. Like, are you saying that they deserve to die? Like, they don't matter? Like, it's so selfish. But I do, unfortunately, I think we're getting really close to the point of as soon as the weather really gets consistently warm, I think people are going to be out. That's stressful to me. That's really stressful to me. Particularly given the ways that this, again, virus is impacting communities that for reasons that we're going to get into aren't even able to stay at home so like you bringing more people into interaction with low income people in particular basically the virus is going to have a field day all i keep thinking about is the movie osmosis jones you know the movie osmosis jones where they have like the virus no, I don't know voice never seen it. you've never seen osmosis jones or are you playing I'm serious. You've never seen Osmosis Jones? Never. Okay, I'm stressed. It's got to be on HBO or something. That's your homework. Anyway, that, that it got Brandy in it. It got, who is it? Chris Rock. It's a cold lot. It's a good, I think Lawrence Fishburne plays the virus. Maybe I'm convincing him with some other deep voice black man, but it's a cartoon. Anyway, there's this virus that's taking over everybody and he's trying to kill everybody. And all I keep thinking about is the little coronavirus, like having a field day, having a party, basically in the places that are already disproportionately negatively impacted 
with the way that things are without the virus. So like the CDC found that 33% of the people who've been hospitalized with COVID-19 are African-American. While you let that sink in, because 33% is like, oh, what's that? That's one third. One third of the population. Mind you, Black people do not make up one third of the population. Only 13% of the U.S. population is Black. That's wild. And the way that it's affecting our communities is going to be something that is going to have ramifications for a really, really long time. Yeah, I remember seeing something... I initially saw it on Twitter, but then I read the article that, like, at the time, you know, this is constantly evolving, but all of the COVID deaths in Richmond mm-hmm. were Black people. They are. That's 100%. And Black people are less than 50% of the population in Richmond now. That's what's so wild. And I'm like, yes, what what kills me actually are all of the people who are like, I wonder why. Like, you know, 45 said, acknowledged it in a press conference. And he was like, you know, basically black people are dying. I don't, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know why. It does make sense though. All of this virus is doing is showing, it's not even exacerbating racial inequality in this country. It's just letting people see it a whole lot easier. You know what I mean? But speaking of that, you know, our Surgeon General, Jerome Adams. No, Jerome. Romy Rome. He, he came out of his mouth and said, you know, Black, Latino, other people of color should avoid alcohol, tobacco, and drugs, and said, y'all need to step up. But the troubling thing, he followed that damning statement with an acknowledgement of, well, drugs, alcohol, tobacco, like they don't contribute to, to COVID in any way. So it was interesting that, like, he blamed the disproportionate numbers of positive COVID cases for people of color on drugs, alcohol, tobacco, when it was convenient for him. But then he said, oh, that that really doesn't play a factor. I mean, were you surprised that that was something that uh, Jerome Adams said? I mean, then he also came out and said, y'all need to do it for your big mama and your pop pop and your granddaddy. And it was like, yo, like. You're out here blowing the blowing all the dog whistles. I'm not surprised, but I was disappointed. I'm not even going to say that I was surprised because I had issues, you know, when Obama was telling us to tell our cousin Pookie to get off the couch and go vote because, you know, don't boo vote. But I just felt like the platform, especially for the U.S. Surgeon General, who is supposed to be giving us actual needed advice. People are scared. That's why else would people be tuning in to what 45 has to say on a daily basis? The man can barely read a book. I'm going to keep it. Keep that running. Okay, people are out here and they're terrified and they're really trying to just get some sort of information. And so when you do something and when he does something like that, like we need you to step up, Black people, Latinx people, X, Y, and Z. What he does is he takes that away from like a structural problem and places it and blames individuals. And I just, I don't know, I was just floored that he was going to do something like that. I wasn't surprised, but it still took me aback. Like, seriously? Seriously? Why, why you can tell um, people out in, the, in wherever they live at that crystal meth doesn't do well? Don't mix COVID and crystal meth. <laughs> like, that's, that's not going to be good for you. But you had to drop to just alcohol tobacco. He's talking about marijuana when he's really talking about drugs. It was just like the most, I don't know. I don't have nothing to say about our U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams, and I'm trying not to act out. So I said what I said. 
And we also know that research has shown us that drug usage isn't higher among any specific it's not. Uh, race, right? Like, but it's not. It, white people do all that same stuff too. All of it. All of it. But but let's talk a little bit about some of the structural issues. Of course. Why do you think Black people are disproportionately affected by COVID. And I mean, I think COVID is just the thing that we're talking about today, but most of the things in America, we can say, oh, like Black people are disproportionately affected by, like we talked about police shootings up here before. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like why specifically COVID? Why are we disproportionately represented? I mean, at first, like when you don't think about it in conjunction with other like structural inequalities that we have, initially it's like, "Mm, why is this happening? But it's pretty... It's pretty evident that poverty causes stressors, right? Poverty causes, like, poverty is the root of the cause of so many things that has us disproportionately negatively affected, right? So let's think about the way that poverty impacts your health. Amongst African Americans, there's a higher prevalence of obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes. I mean, we can run down the list of things that are associated with racial discrimination, racial inequity, and all sorts of things like that. You know what I'm saying? Like in terms of high stress levels, when you have high stress levels, over time, it develops into chronic stress levels. Chronic stress levels, what do they do? They make you vulnerable to, like your body is unable to fight back against various forms of infection. So you've got like the medical side, that's impacted by poverty. And then on the on, on another side, and I'm gonna let you jump in because I know you have reasons why you're thinking about it like that. Black Americans overwhelmingly live in the South and overwhelmingly Southern governors have been slow to respond to this virus. And they're quick to of, reopen. And they're quick to reopen. I mean, some of them have already talked about like how we need to open nail salons and hairdressers and X, Y, and Z because, you know, people just really want to get haircuts and these people also need to make money, which I get. And I, I, I understand that people do need to make money. But at the end of the day, like if we weren't having so many people living paycheck to paycheck, people wouldn't have to go out and risk their lives in order to make two coins to rub together. We're living in states where governors aren't taking our health seriously, didn't take our health seriously at the beginning. In Florida or Georgia or wherever, the beaches are open. Yeah, Georgia and Florida, actually. The people keep talking about how the government is taking away, quote unquote, our choices, our freedom, quote unquote. But like your freedom should not infringe upon my freedom. And so when you go out and you decide that you're not going to be physically distanced or you don't wash your hands, when you decide that you're going to go out and engage in this way and you put me at a possible risk of infection, you have just infringed on my freedoms to live in a healthy way. You in exercising your freedom should not in, infringe upon mine. That's my biggest thing. But yeah, like, you know, chronic stress leads to higher levels of inflammation. It makes you more vulnerable to infection. It's like I said, linked to poverty. People who live in, in impoverished places 
are at higher risk for all sorts of things, being catching a cold, being exposed to a virus in comparison to people who are not stressed, like housing discrimination, poverty, you know, let's not forget the Tuskegee experiments being discriminated against in medical spaces. You know, speaking of the Tuskegee experiments, like I always think about the smallpox blankets as well with, mm-hmm. the, with the American Indians. But, you know, whenever I hear about like chronic stress, I always think of what I like to call continuous traumatic stress disorder. Mm. And so, you know, when we talk about PTSD and it being like one significant event, but oftentimes if you're poor, if you're black, if you're disabled, you continuously deal with these factors, these traumatic events over and over and over in your life. And so, but some of the things I think about you know, I think about our prison populations in Virginia a lot. And as someone who has worked in a prison as a contractor, as a substance abuse counselor, I always reflect back, like, we don't have the infrastructure for an outbreak in the prison. And our prisons aren't built for people to be physically distant. In Virginia's prisons, you're either in a civil environment where you still share a number of common spaces or B, you're in a dormitory setting where you have like 80 people in one dorm. And so in COVID, like that's not ideal for anyone, right? And then in Virginia, something that I found, like, I never knew this, but Virginia's population is 19% Black, but 58% of the prison population is Black. That's disappointing. Yeah. But I'm not one of those people that say like, we just need to release people now because... As you and I talked about on on another venue, Mm -hmm. um, on another show a few weeks ago, we already know some of the barriers to recently release persons from prison, right? Like Mm -hmm. with jobs and housing and food and healthcare. And so just releasing an abundance of people right now without any of those resources and especially if they haven't been tested prior to being released, I think that is not ideal either for them or for anyone else. And then I think we we really have to look at the workforce. I think that contributes to to some of these disproportionate numbers. A lot of the service industries, custodial jobs, grocery stores, working for the Department of Corrections, a lot of the essential workers are black folks. So I think that's also, you know, those people don't have the luxury of working from home right now. So I think that's also contributing to some of the disproportionate number of positive cases. Oh, yeah. And I feel like even just situating ourselves and how disproportionate, like you gave that number, 19% of Virginia's population is Black, but 58% of the prison population is. Also, we're looking at, again, it's not just Virginia, right? In Chicago, Chicago, only 32% of the population is Black. There's 67% of the deaths. Milwaukee, they're 26% of the population, but 73% of the deaths. In Louisiana, they're 32% of the population and 70% of the deaths, right? It's not just that we're saying that there are more people who are Black that are being disproportionately affected. Like the numbers really, truly show that there is something that is catastrophic that is happening amongst Black communities 
in particular Black low-income communities across the entire United States. Just like you said with the prison population, right? And making sure that we have an adequate plan for re-releasing these people back into the population if, if we do so at all, especially considering testing, who they're going home to, will there be jobs for them when they get home? Is there a way for them to make a living once they get home? There are all sorts of things that go, like, go into that, but then also just thinking about jobs. Like you said, we're more likely to be a part of the essential workforce than any other racial ethnic group in certain areas. Uh, clearly not in all areas, but like look at the healthcare industry. Black workers are about 50% more likely to work in healthcare and the social assistance industry and 40% more likely to work in hospitals compared to white workers. I know people think of like doctors and the first person that pops in their mind is like this older white man, but doctors do not make hospitals run. They are a function of the hospital. Somebody has to come in and clean that room. You have nursing assistants. You got uh, physician's assistants. You got doctors. Like you got people at all levels. You have the people who, when you come in, take your temperature. You've got the people who are in the records room. We're just far more likely to be exposed to infections than other populations. And like these are people who can't stay home. They're essential. They're going in and out every day. And the more we allow people to kind of like run up muck and just not do what they ought to be doing with our physical distancing, social distancing, the more likely these people are going to be exposed. I mean, Black workers are twice as likely than white workers to be respiratory therapists. All we're, This is a, a respiratory infectious disease. Like this literally affects specifically our respiratory system. So you have those types of jobs. You also have jobs where we're more likely to be working at the post office. We're more likely, we're a higher share of bus drivers. These are people that are not staying home, that are having constant contact all day long. And then also like think about some of the jobs that I named. Are these the jobs that have paid sick leave often? No, not at all. No. These people have lower access to benefits that could mitigate the risk and protect them from if they do become sick. We have all these people who are asking to be put consistently put themselves out there, put themselves out on the line. But then if and when they get sick, there's nothing there for them to fall back on. It's just, it's wild to me that nobody is thinking about it in that context. Sometimes I, I find myself thinking about how we treat the essential workers, the people who we see that we really, really need, how we don't pay them well, but also how we have opportunities to help them in ways as consumers or as clients, et cetera. And oftentimes we don't, right? Like, and so even during this crisis, and I'm definitely speaking from a place of privilege here, but I've tried to go above and beyond on like tipping, right? Like right. my Instacart driver, hey, like I'm gonna tip you on my car, but I'm also gonna tip you in cash if I can. Because like you're rendering a service to me that you're putting yourself at risk to quote unquote protect me. Right. If you can do those things, I encourage you to do so. I was also gonna say something that I found interesting was so I'm gonna preface this by saying For those of us who are in the communities, we know a number of these things, right? Mm. I think COVID is like pulling off the Band-Aid and exposing the wound to the larger population, right? Because we know that Black and brown people, we don't receive the same care when when you do go to the doctor. 
you and I shared an article about how COVID is affecting LGBTQ population in America. And um, that was just really interesting to me because just like, like the number of quote unquote non-essential employees who are, who identifies the LGBTQ Mm-hmm. And then how it's affecting their job prospects moving forward. So that was that was kind of disheartening. Oh yeah, for me um, to to read. And we know like the LGBTQ community and the Black community are not mutually exclusive places, right? So the fact that nearly one in ten LGBTQ people are unemployed and more likely to live in poverty than straight and cisgendered people. Definitely impacts their access to healthcare. They're more likely to work in jobs that involve food service, restaurants, hospitals, retail industries. And while retail industries are in a lot of ways have been shut down, all of the other things that we I just named are still ongoing as, you know, quote unquote, essential services. And so I think that the ways that we think about this has to become far more nuanced than what it is right now. And we need to really be thinking about the ways that different people, their identities intersect. But even beyond that, what I think is most important, and it's something that we discussed on a different platform already as well, is just moving forward. One of the reasons why we started this podcast three years ago was to develop solutions. As much pain that this has caused, and as much as I want to roll my eyes when people are like, oh my gosh, I didn't know about such inequality and blah, 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 blah. I think it's really, like you said, it's exposing something that's been there for, for forever to a lot of people who either didn't know or were able, more easily able to ignore it before. We are just really primed to really start thinking about like, what do we want life to be like when this is all over? A lot of people are, want it to go right back to the way it was. And I think that's low-hanging fruit. I think we really need to be thinking about and working cooperatively and collaboratively and placing pressure on legislators to create the type of world that we want to walk back out into. And so like, I think solutions would be things that we should jump into. Just not like, I, I have no cure for COVID-19, right? Like I cannot fix the Rona. That's not, that's not a thing that I can do, but I would encourage us and like encourage all of our listeners to start walking towards solutions. When we reemerge on the other side of this, it makes our world that much better. Not saying that COVID makes our world better, but just seizing the opportunity so that we can emerge better for it. So like, since you don't want to go back to quote-unquote normal, what exactly do you want? One of the things that I actually want to get us back to doing, we did this at the very, very beginning of our podcast. And um, Mary Catherine, who always listens, uh, I remember her really, really liking that we did this, where we recommended books that are like we're reading or that we're thinking about. And so one of the books that I've been reading is called Evicted. It came out in 2016. And it's by Matthew Desmond, who is a professor at, I believe, Princeton now. I have some issues with the book. It's not perfect. And there are a lot of things that I wish were different. And I don't like that he wrote in the book. But it's really gotten me thinking about housing and how housing is a fundamental right. People's ability to experience, and this is me pulling from Desmond, to experience life, liberty, and happiness are directly tied to the ability to have a stable home. All of it, it all comes 
comes back to housing. I've never thought about it in that way. I've never really given, and you know, that's me coming from a place of privilege of not having to worry about where I'm going to lay my head at night. And so one of the things that I've been really thinking about is a suggestion that Desmond has in the book was for us to really start thinking about how we can reorient housing and how housing contribute to people having fewer health disparities. I think a good number of Americans pay almost 70% of their income into their housing. So that means you only have 30% to do whatever else it is you want to improve your life, improve the life of your children, improve the life lives of the people that you care about. And so thinking about a way that we can bring that mode back down to people only spending 30% because that's really what would actually be just is bringing back or pulling back so that people are only paying 30% of their, their paycheck towards their housing so that they can use that other money for other things that they need to improve their lifestyle. And so one of the things that he requested and one of the solutions that I've really been thinking about is kind of two-pronged. Is One is for us to be pushing for our local government to develop branches of publicly funded uh, civil lawyers to help people assert their basic needs in eviction court when they're being evicted. Right now, I don't think most people know, but when people say, you know, I would like the court to provide X, Y, and Z for my whatever it is, my case, a lot of that only applies in criminal courts. Not all, there are some civil cases, but for the most part, it only applies in criminal court versus eviction and housing rights are within civil court. We need publicly funded civil lawyers to help people navigate maintaining housing housing. And so like establishing that as a branch where we know so many people are unemployed right now. Millions of people are unemployed. Millions of people cannot make rent. Millions of people have been living paycheck to paycheck and have most definitely fallen behind on rent. Even if evictions have been frozen for a time, that doesn't mean that once that freeze is up, all of that back monthly rent is going to be due at one time and people will not be able to pay. We know that people are predatory and they're looking to capitalize off of economic depression, the economic depression that we're, if not in the middle of, we're on the brink of. I really, really would love for us to be thinking about the ways that we can give people representation in tenant and housing court so that people can prevent evictions so they can stay in house. The other prong is something I'm still working through, the, you know, voluntary vouchers. You know, I don't like vouchers when it comes to, to education, but I've been going down a, a rabbit hole with like public housing and vouchers and how that could be helpful. And so I'm trying to really figure that out. I just, I think that it's, it's a travesty that most federal housing subsidies benefit people with six-figure incomes. And that's not me just postulating. That's a, that's a fact. The most federal housing subsidies benefit families with six-figure in incomes. And I think that with that, if poverty is existing and persisting in America, it's because we are allowing it to. It's not for lack of resources. And so like, as we're trying to figure out solutions to help people, let's develop a branch for yeah. civil lawyers where people who cannot afford representation can go and be represented in court. So that way, when they have to go back to work and they're being evicted, it, it doesn't automatically fall on the in the landlord's favor because they can't take off work to go help themselves. So there's just so much that I'm thinking about, but that's, yeah. that's a really big one is housing. So basically you're thinking of something to the effect of like a legal aid, but fully government funded with the purpose of representing families around housing. 
Oh yeah. I think at our, 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 on the last venue, when we were on RVA dirt, it's a great podcast. You all should go check it out. That conversation that we had with Natasha really, really just got me going and got me interested in housing. And so I started reading whatever I could and we do it in criminal cases in criminal court right now. If you can't afford to represent yourself, you get a court appointed lawyer. Is that perfect? No. But does it help people who might not be able to advocate for themselves in certain instances? Yes. I don't know why we don't see housing as a basic right. And so, yeah, that, that's yeah. what I would like to see. I would like to see governments create, creating those divisions in response to COVID to make sure that pe- we are not putting people out on the street it, as a result of this economic downturn. The things that I'm reading right now, I'm reading The Life is about Michael Jordan. And I'm finding that extremely interesting. Like, I decided to start it right here along with The Last Dance docuseries. Oh, yeah. I saw that, too. We should, we should talk um, about it in one of these days. Yeah, maybe when it's over. But, like, Michael Jordan, who I have concerns about a number of things that he's done and he hasn't done. But it's really interesting, like, how he's consistently positioned himself. When Michael Jordan came into the league, you know, Nike basically bet their their future and their present on Michael Jordan. Like, he got basically all of their marketing dollars. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know this until I was reading the book. At the time, the NBA only allowed solid white shoes. Right. So Michael Jordan's first shoes, uh, the ones, were white, black, and red. Mm-hmm. And so he was fined every game. I think it was $5,000 every time he wore shoes that weren't solid white. Right. And so Nike agreed to pay that fine. And then they leaked it to the public. Like, oh, man, like this is what he's doing. And we're paying this. And what ended up happening was a marketing spurt for them because people like, oh, like Michael Jordan was, I guess you can say was the first quote unquote bad boy, like the first rebel in the NBA, even down to going from the short shorts to the longer shorts. Like that was seen as an act of rebellion. And we know that American culture loves rebels. And so that kind of contributed to like the Air Jordan brand. So that's been interesting because it really highlights like his early life and some of his experiences and the impact that that had on him as a person and sometimes how he's callous about things but also why he's so driven so i appreciate that i also i'm reading all about love by bell hooks Mm -hmm. which was a gift to me from uh, one of the local foundations here in richmond i'm i'm curious to like really get into that and then i'm slow reading when hell froze over that is by Dwayne yancey Mm -hmm. who was like reporter for the roanoke times and so he's covering the historic Wilder races, 85 lieutenant governor, and then gubernatorial race in 89. So for those listeners who may not know, Governor Wilder was the first Black governor elected in America post-Reconstruction. And he was elected in 1989 in Virginia, the two-time capital of the Confederacy. And so Wilder is uh, still really active politically uh, he was a mayor of Richmond a few years back, and this week he was blasting local government because he felt that enough people aren't talking about uh, the COVID outbreak in the Canterbury Rehabilitation Center 
in Henrico. But once again, someone who has a really interesting background. So uh, not to like get off subject, but last year, Governor Wilder was accused of sexual assault. And his response to the allegation was, and I'm not being facetious here, that the woman texted him after the alleged incident and she used an exclamation point. And because she used an exclamation point, that meant that she was excited to see him again. So there was no credence to her allegation that he sexually assaulted her. So in 2019, that was his defense to a sexual assault allegation. She used an exclamation point. In short, I say all that. Those are the three things I'm reading. And as we've talked about before, flawed people can still do good work, mm-hmm. even though they can still be flawed and we still can question their suitability to do some of the work that they're doing. They can do the work. And I think that's important now because of who's the president. Yeah. And I hope he will only be the president until January 19th, 2021. But like we can't afford for him to fail. No, and we like, can't. He can't fumble this. Too many people's <laughs> lives are, are on the line right now. And so it's like, I, it pained me, but I, sometimes feel like I am just really, I I don't want to say I'm cheering for him because that is way too much, but like I I want his administration to do the right thing, to make the right moves, to save lives. Doesn't seem like I'm often getting my wish on that, but I'm not like actively rooting for this man to fail with COVID because I know that if he fails with COVID, that's going to cost so many people their lives and thinking about where he's doing things, but it's not just him that we have to look to. We're looking to our governors. We're looking to our legislators. I mean, there's important legislation around, you know, help moving away from right now. I don't know if a lot of people know, but people who receive supplemental certs security incomes, SSI, people particularly with disabilities. There are Black people with disabilities. The two are not mutually exclusive. There are people of all races and all backgrounds with disabilities who aren't able to have more than $2,000 in the bank right now. And so, you know, there's legislation right now out of a senator uh, from Ohio, Brown, and a senator, Coons, from Delaware, who proposed doing away with that limitation, right? So like it allows people to accrue assets and still receive SSI, particularly like because they acknowledge to punish people with disabilities and their families for saving money during this time, like a particular time right now where we don't know what our economic status is going to be when we walk out of this. They, to, to prevent them from doing that is just adamantly cruel. And so that's just like something to, to think about. Another recommendation I want to make for a book and progressive dystopia, I don't really have right now any solutions for our education system. It's something that I'm thinking about deeply. I don't know if you have any, Coop. Uh, Education right now is people just are being flabbergasted by the fact that there's inequalities in our education system and things like broadband and internet and not being able to get basic services like lunch and breakfast and things like that are all being exasperated across just really the country is a book called Progressive Dystopia, Abolition, Anti-Blackness and Schooling in San Francisco. It's by uh, Savannah Shange, who is the daughter of Intosika Shange, who is the 
the author of For Color Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Isn't Enough. But Dr. Sean Gay, uh, who is a professor at UC Santa Cruz, has just written this beautiful, I mean, the book stands alone. I didn't need to tell you who her mother was. I just felt like it was good, important contextual information. But really just talking about how we need to be thinking about like abolition, how we need to be thinking about like anti-Blackness, how we need to be thinking about students in, not in the light of COVID, but like it can really be applied to the light of COVID. And I just, I'm thinking about that a lot. It's a very heady book, very theory dense, very good. 10 out of 10 would recommend. But yeah, I'm really thinking about education almost on a daily factor. And I know that you are, as you know, with giving your position. Yeah, you know, education. I think one of the disheartening things for me was when people try to craft a narrative initially that COVID was the reason why students received disparate educations in, in Virginia or in America, right? And right. like my argument has consistently been like, we know that education is completely different even when school doors open. And so I'm really concerned that I think there's probably a 40% chance of us actually having school this fall, traditional more, school setting. Meaning like it's more unlikely than it is likely. Yes. I, I think there's I think there's a forty percent chance of it actually being school is normal this fall. And so I think it's gonna be critical for us to like become extremely innovative with the things that we do. I look back on the model of like in Prince Edward County back when public schools were closed from 59 through 64. There were a lot of like community schools and, you know, people educating people in basements, but we shouldn't be doing that because of physical distancing now. So I think it's going to be heavily focused on like project learning, project-based learning. And I think that the community has to like step up to bridge the gap because I think it's easy to give a straight-A student who may not have resources, like we can give them resources and say, oh, now you can learn, right? Like complete this project, learn off of YouTube or school at home or whatever they call it, your division. I'm more concerned about like the disabled child who learns a little bit differently and who needs some special accommodation. How do we reach them in this time? You know, the interesting thing is, like, Virginia closed schools completely. Oh, they were, we were one of the first. And, like, places like North Carolina, they're, they're still doing school virtually right now, mm-hmm. which, you know, there are a lot of issues about equity there, but they're still trying to educate the kids in some capacity. And, mm-hmm. you know, shout out to the teachers and the divisions who Absolutely. are, like, going the extra mile trying to ensure that the kids are still learning. That's, you know, that isn't something that's mandatory statewide right now. It's definitely not. And uh, it's not it's not an easy task for anyone. And we know that this is exacerbating what exacerbating, I think, is my favorite word, this podcast. And we know that it's making everything that was happening inside the, the classroom like this is I mean, not even that just like think about the summer slide like this is it times, I don't know, 10,000. So whew. It's just a lot, a lot on people's, people's hearts, on minds. Tell me one good thing that's happened for you since COVID. You know, I think COVID has given me some perspective. You know, something I never thought of before until COVID, my grandmother lived through the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And I remember growing up, like my grandmother used to, whenever I hugged her, I always had to like squeeze her because mm-hmm. she wanted me to show her that it was, it was real. 
And so I think about how many times, yeah, I think about how many times we go through these interactions where we just kind of go through the motions just because it's the right thing to do, right? Like you see someone, you just shake their hand or you give them a little church hug or Mm -hmm. even, even, you know, like via text, you know, like, yo, how are you? And it doesn't mean anything, but it's like, it's a learned behavior that this is what we should be doing. And not to say that I've been inauthentic in any way prior to this, but now like, I, I think I'm very intentional. Like if I hit someone up, I'm not just hitting you up because I'm bored or I have right. some free time. Like I genuinely care like, yo, how are you as a person? You know, how's your health? How's your family? And so I think I really have gained some perspective on now I understand why my grandmother, why those small interactions were so important to her. And mm-hmm. I think we take them for granted. And I always thought, well, she was older. So like, but it's those really small things like now, you know how much I want to go be able to go to a happy hour and have some wings with some friends. So right? badly, or, so badly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it's those small things that, that, that i that you take for granted so often because you're like, oh, I'm going to happy hour. I'm going to check Instagram. I'm going to send this text message instead of just being present. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing that is really, my life is going to be a lot different after COVID. What about you? Definitely giving me a lot of perspective about a lot of things. I struggle right now because I'm still, you know, in my last set of classes, doing it online virtually. And right now I'm struggling. You know, my parents come in, my brothers come in, they want to talk to me. And it's hard for me to be like, yo, I'm working because now I have this perspective of this thing is serious. You take anybody at any time, no matter who they are. And so I'm really putting a lot of time and energy into the the people that matter the most to me. And I, I really feel it when people reach out to me Uh, One specific thing that's been really great for me is I am in the process of being hired as adjunct faculty at VCU, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, I'll be teaching a class uh, this summer. I was hoping that it would be in person. It's not probably not going to be in person, especially because I think our restrictions are held until like what, June 10th. My class starts June 9th. But if it's virtual, you, I encourage listeners if you want to come and, and hang out with me and learn, please, please do. It's going to be uh, at VCU. It's called Reframing the Linguistic Dexterity of African-American Students. It's got a really like fancy names. The long and short of it is I'm teaching a course um, that's going to investigate the, investi- the, the intersections of language and race and racism in the educational experiences of African-American students. So how Black students, how African-American students are discriminated against in classes, whether it be in pre-K or in higher education. We're going to be looking at theory. We're going to be looking at articles. Or It's just, I'm really excited. I'm going to have, hopefully, a guest speaker to uh, stream in. And yeah, I got that news. I'm pretty excited. It's not the ideal situation, um, but you can find it on VCU's School of Education social media channels, and it's usually VCU SOE. And I'm really excited. Uh, it's going to be July 9th through July 30th, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 3 p.m. So if you wanna you wanna join, please enroll. Email me, hit me up, and. One good thing is we have a we're we're scheduled to record next week. Yeah, I plan to sit in on a few of your classes. You should. Um, so don't call. Yeah, don't call on me, but I'm I'm here to learn. <laughs> you better do the reading. Even, when you come. 
Oh, reading ain't no problem, but you know, sometimes <laughs> I may not look like I'm paying attention, but I have a really good memory about things. So okay, well, I might have to just test that out and call on you anyway. Just make sure you do my reading. I'm a stickler about my reading. I don't assign it for my health. <laughs> Here we go. All right, all right, Professor Green, did we eat today? I think we did. We gave solutions today. We hit them with facts and numbers. We actually recorded. I think that they could tell at the very beginning we were getting back into our groove, but I think with us recording, you know, we got it. We have an appointment for next week. As long as you don't bail on us, we should be good. Chill. I think next week, I mean, I will talk about what we're going to talk about, but I really want to watch that Shirley Chisholm Series. Oh yeah! Then it just dropped. I've been saving that actually. What is it? It's yeah, on Hulu. It's on Hulu. Yeah, yeah. I've been saving it. I maybe unless something like massive happens, we should talk about that next week. I'm just saying that in advance so our listeners can catch up. And if you want to watch it with us, so you know what we're talking about, go on Hulu. The show is Mrs. America. Mrs. America. Yes. All right. I think it's a short series. It's like nine episodes. Let's let's get into it. We got how many days? Seven days till we record again. So one of these days we're gonna have to double up. All right. Thanks for listening, y'all, and being loyal, even though sometimes we don't be loyal to y'all and be <laughs> uploading sporadically. But we have an appointment next week, so I'm in it to win it. Aight. <laughs>